morning. Um, let's, as we come to uh, look at God's word, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would um, let the words of our mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight as we reflect on your on your word, as we investigate it, as we question our own lives. Oh Lord, we rely on you as our rock and our redeemer. Please guide us this morning, we pray. Amen. Uh, who came to church by car this morning? So pretty much everybody, um, which is... You came on the walking bus? Oh, Kyla came. So I said pretty much everybody. Uh, yeah. But in our city, that's the way you get around. Like we don't, uh, that's, that's pretty normal. That's pretty standard. But if you came to church by car this morning, um, you have just lived out the, a parable of the Christian life. Um, and that's that's a that's an example we're going to use this morning uh, as a as an image. You see, um, when you came, when you hopped in your car this morning, you did a very ordinary thing that you do very often for getting around. Um, you probably did it without thinking. You went to the car, you started it, you eyed off the fuel gauge to make sure there was enough fuel in there to get to here, and then you um, then you uh, pulled out down the driveway and you use the roads uh, that have already been laid out for you and prepared for you so that you could come here. But you see, there's a lot of preparation and there's a lot involved in that simple act of you coming to church this morning. Um, You see, you use the ordinary laws of physics and chemistry to operate the engine that you probably didn't think about at all. Um, and you needed the right kind of fuel in your tank to be able to get here. If you have a petrol car and you put diesel in it, you wouldn't have gone anywhere. Um, and you needed all those roads to be laid out and prepared for you in order for you to be able to drive on them and make your way here. We needed those ordinary means to get here, but we needed those that fuel and we needed those um, the way to be prepared. And so today we're looking under the hood of the day-to-day life with the resurrection Jesus. Uh, we're going to see that the features of the passage that we're reading this morning reveal the ordinary means of life that a disciple uses. Um, we need the right fuel from Jesus and we need him to prepare the way for us. This, this story in John is a parable of Jesus, a parable of, the li- of life with the post-resurrection Jesus because Jesus, he meets us in our ordinary existence, and he goes before us to prepare the way. He he feeds our souls, and we see this in, in, in three main headings that we're going to look at this morning. So if you haven't got your Bibles open, we're going to be walking through the passage, if you want to keep them open. We're going to break up the text into three headings this morning. We're looking at the way that Jesus' disciples are ordinary. We're looking at the way that Jesus goes ahead of his disciples, and we're looking at the way that Jesus feeds his disciples. You probably remember from last week, um, over the last few weeks from Easter, we've been going through the story in John, the, 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 the telling of the crucifixion and resurrection story in John. 
And we've examined the way that Jesus was arrested, tried and executed, even though he was innocent. We've looked at the fact that, that Jesus went to the cross of his own volition and he did it to destroy sin and death. And we saw that when Jesus rose from the dead, it was clear that he had defeated death. And if he can defeat death, we can be sure that he has also dealt with sin that causes death. And last week we looked at that resurrection paradigm, that new pattern of becoming one of Jesus' disciples after Jesus has risen from the dead. Um, we don't we don't go and physically sit at Jesus' feet anymore. We need to rely on uh, we need to rely on the transmission of the message from others. We need to rely on um, on the testimony of eyewitnesses, and that we read those even today in our Bibles. And because of that, we don't have blind faith. People are sometimes um, Christians are accused of having blind faith, but our faith isn't blind. Our faith is resting on. Um, we have a faith assurance. And last thing we saw last week was we saw that Thomas, um, through the profession that that Jesus was God and Lord, we saw that John had finished what he needed to say. When John started his gospel, he said, Jesus is God. He proved Jesus was God. And then the end of his gospel it has Thomas saying, Jesus is God. And so what we're getting into now today is chapter 21. We're, we're getting into the epilogue. We're getting into the spot where he's trying to tie up a couple of loose ends. So what's next? Uh, the, the last chapter, uh, of, this is the last chapter of the book. We're tying up a few loose ends. It's like um, when you read a fantasy novel and you you get to the climax of the story and they deal with the main kind of issues but there's always that kind of that final chapter where they run around and they, they tie up a few loose ends and, and you find out what happened to so-and-so and did, did, did old mate get to return home to his family or those kinds of things. And um, so John is tying up some of the subplots here in, in chapter 21. But even like every, good, uh, every story, good story, there's a bit of a cliffhanger there will be answers, there will be questions that don't get answers and we're left wondering. But Steve can deal with that next week when he gets back. But for us, we're dealing with uh, the first part of chapter 21, concerning ourselves with what happened next. What happened after Jesus was met them in the upper room, after he met Thomas and Thomas professed him as God? Does, he, does Jesus just disappear? Or is Jesus at this time still running around and uh, jump-scaring people um, through locked doors? Um, in um, Luke's gospel, Jesus gave Mary a message and he said he gave Mary a message to give to the disciples and he told them to meet him in Galilee. And so we're looking at the story now. We're picking up the part of the story where the disciples have gone back up to Galilee. After all the big deal in Jerusalem with the death and resurrection of Jesus, they've made their way back up to Galilee. It's, you know, probably 120 k's or so as the crow flies up to Galilee. Um, they probably spent uh, half a week walking back. But now they're back in Galilee. And... They're on the Sea of Galilee. Now, in the, in the Bible, uh, in, in the section of John that we read this morning, 
uh, he calls it the Sea of Tiberias, but that's just another name for the Sea of Galilee. And I'm sure you might remember that there's a lot of activity in the Gospels that's happened on or around the Sea of Galilee. But they're back in their hometown, they're back in their home region, and they are on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Just read with me the the first few verses there. Um, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of the disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we'll go with you. And they went out and they got into a boat, but that night they caught nothing. So after their two encounters with the resurrection Lord, resurrected Lord Jesus in the locked room uh, in Jerusalem, they've come back up to Galilee and they're probably, this boat that they go out, is probably Peter's boat because he was a fisherman and now that they're back, they're going out on his boat. But the question that kind of comes up is why are they going fishing? They've, they've received the, they've seen the resurrected Lord Jesus. They've been given a commission by Jesus to go out. Jesus has, uh, has, has, has commissioned them with the Holy Spirit, but they've gone back to Galilee and they're just going fishing. So the question is, is this good? Is this, is this what they're supposed to be doing? What's, what's their purpose in going fishing? What's their motivation? And I submit to you that there's three possibilities of what's going on here. Perhaps they were just in Galilee because they were asked. Jesus told them to go and wait for him in Galilee. So they might just be up there looking for productive ways to use their time while they're waiting for Jesus to turn up. They're, they're in a bit of a weird place. Jesus has come back. They were still kind of waiting for Jesus' direction, but he kind of sent them out. And they weren't kind of sure where they were supposed to be doing. Their their preconceived notions of who the Messiah was and what he was supposed to do had been turned on their head when Jesus died. But they were now starting to grasp the idea that the Messiah was doing just like, just the Messiah had done everything that had been promised in the Old Testament. So maybe they were just in this transitional phase, trying to use their time wisely while they were hanging out and waiting for Jesus. Or perhaps secondly, they were looking for a distraction they might have felt lost without Jesus around. And with the sadness and confusion, they might have just been looking for something to do that was simple and familiar. I'm sure you've had experiences where, you know, life just seems to be in turmoil. You've got not sure what's going on with complex situations at work or you've got difficult um, relationships um, in your life and you just want to do something that makes sense. You just want to do something that you can put your hand to um, and be productive like for me, I love getting out there and mowing the lawn. It's something I can get out there and I can do and it can be finished and it's simple and nobody else is involved. Something that yeah, you feel like you have control over. And this might have been what they were doing. Fishing was familiar. Fishing was something that they could go and they could do and it made sense. Or perhaps it was a, perhaps it was a third option. Perhaps they'd given up. Perhaps the, the disciples were going AWOL. They had had amazing experiences with Jesus. They'd had these mountaintop experiences, amazing times of ministry with Jesus. Everything was on the up and up, and then their world came crashing down around them when Jesus was executed. They were fearing for their lives. They were confused and lost. 
and perhaps in despair. And even though Jesus had risen from the dead and appeared to them twice, maybe they were still lost and not sure what was going on. Maybe they hadn't seen Jesus for weeks and they thought that he had abandoned them. And if this was the case, they were probably going fishing because they were going back to their old jobs. They were getting back in the saddle. They'd left their nets to follow Jesus, but now that Jesus has disappeared, maybe they were going back to take up the nets again. Now, we we can't see into their minds. The Bible doesn't explain it for us. But we do know that they are in this confusing time and they are going out on the lake to go fishing. They they uh, They're in a, a weird place and they could have mixed motives for getting out on the lake that night. But, you know, as I was reading this, I was thinking, you know, very similar experiences to our own life. Um, we go out into our own lives with mixed motives. On the one hand, we, we are waiting for the Lord and we're trying to trust him. But on the other side, we're often trying to make our own way and trying to make things make sense for us and fix our lives. Sometimes we're just trying to distract ourselves from the brokenness in our souls. Or maybe we might be thinking, you know, if I work really hard and immerse myself in this over here, I won't have to deal with the problems over here. Perhaps you are just waiting patiently for the Lord. You're trying to use the the time in this life God has given you productively in a God-honoring way. You're doing your best to raise your kids or best to evangelize your neighbors or the best to bring about goodness in the world. But it's in this, in this place where Jesus meets his disciples in their ordinary existence of human beings out on a lake trying to catch some fish. It might have simply been that they needed to go fishing so they had food to eat. Perhaps they wanted to sell the fish and make a few bucks. But then comes the issue. They come up empty-handed. Their nets were empty, their labour was in vain, and these poor fellows had spent all night on the water and come up with nothing. It's it's like when uh, you're at work and you're working on this project, you spend all week getting it just right, and then, like, the last day your boss says, oh, we don't really need that anymore. Imagine the frustration and the hopelessness And I'm sure this frustration would only feed into the complex emotions that they were already feeling at this time. So tired and at the end of their rope, Jesus meets his disciples in this ordinary setting. And this is the ordinary pattern of our lives as well. We need to work and eat. We go in with mixed motives. And sometimes, despite our best intentions, we come up empty-handed. We might become up jobless, homeless, spiritually destitute, or emotionally dried up. And Jesus' disciples are like us. They suffer the emptiness of life, like the emptiness of net. They have joy, but they also have sorrow. Not every moment is amazing and uplifting. Sometimes the life of a disciple is just fruitlessly trolling a net in the hopes of catching at least one fish before the dawn. After Jesus ascended to heaven, we have amazing stories about some of the things that happened in the lives of the disciples as the church grew, where the Holy Spirit comes in, the church is growing, it's going from strength to strength. But even in the midst of the crazy stories and acts, there are years between some of the verses where nothing appears to take place. 
acts as like the news feed of the church. You see all the high points and the, and the good stuff that's going on or some of the low points. And like our own Facebook profiles, there is a lot of everyday living that is in between the high and the low that doesn't make it into a post. I'm sure if you wrote the Cliff Notes version of your own life, you might come up like the book of Acts. There's you know, a bunch of high points and there's some low points. But there will be years in between the lines where nothing happened except faithful, quiet service to Jesus. You went to work and you came home. You went to school and you came home. You cooked dinner and you had a shower. You went to church and you ate the Lord's Supper. Our lives are ordinary. And that's not something that we need to be afraid of. It's in these ordinary lives that Jesus comes and he serves us and he saves us. But he doesn't remove us from this existence, but instead he enables us to continue as his representatives in this world. We are ordinary people who've received an extraordinary inheritance. Like the disciples of Galilee going for fish, they have the resurrected Christ. And whether they had good motives or not, Jesus will meet them in that ordinary experience to achieve something with them that is truly extraordinary. He'll work through their ordinary existence to establish an extraordinary kingdom, just as Jesus is established his extraordinary kingdom through us as his ordinary faithful servants. He'll take our empty nets and he'll use them for the kingdom. So I want, I want to encourage us to live like the disciples who throughout the rest of their lives carried out faithful service, doing the day-to-day work of God as ordinary people. Experience the emotions of life. Live, laugh, love. Find food to eat. Pay your bills. Love your family. Care for others. Worship God. Change urinal cakes. Build skyscrapers. Change oil. Make sandwiches build roads, or file tax returns. Because Jesus' disciples are ordinary people in an ordinary world with an extraordinary saviour. So throughout Jesus' ministry, he's always been one step ahead of them the whole time. So because he has ordinary disciples, he goes ahead of them to make the way for them by illuminating the way or training them the way to go or even physically showing up to meet them there. So Jesus goes ahead of his disciples. And this is the case in our story here. Jesus is there waiting at the end of their hard and fruitless night. He's prepared them for this. They have suffered a fruitless night and been separated from and they've been separated from Jesus for some indefinite period of time. But he's rocked up here and he's prepared something for them which shall sear into their minds something of the of the way the Christian life is. Just read it with me from from verse 4. It says, Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? And he answered them, No. They answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The first thing you might notice in that little section is that they didn't recognize Jesus. And this seems to be a bit of a theme of the the resurrected Jesus. Um, Everywhere he goes, people seem to have trouble recognizing him. Jesus, you know, Mary thinks he's a gardener. Um, The blokes on the road to Emmaus 
don't don't recognize him um, and when they were in the locked in when they were with him in the locked upper room they didn't quite understand that it was Jesus till he showed them the wounds in his hands and feet and it seems to be a similar story him they they don't recognize him now to be fair it could just be that it was the early hours of the morning and there was a shadowy figure on the beach and they didn't know who it was but it seems to be a pattern that that Jesus' resurrection body defies conventional recognition. But the way Jesus calls out might be a little bit patronising at first. He says, children. Uh, but uh, one of the commentaries I read said, well, it's probably a bit more casual language in the same way that we might say lads. You know, did you catch anything, lads? Or, hey, boys, have you have you caught any fish? Um, and Jesus asks them, even though he knows the answer, It's not like he's sitting there wondering if they've caught any fish. He knows. But he gets them to admit that they have come up empty-handed. He gets them to admit that they have had a fruitless night. And even as they admit it, he tells them, put your nets on the other side, you'll find some fish. And he fills their nets. So they've got this strange guy calling out to them to try the other side of the boat. You you can imagine this. Put yourself in, in their seat. They've been wandering around the lake all night with their nets and they haven't come up with anything. And some dude on the beach decides that he knows better and um, you should try the other side of the boat. And the disciples are probably thinking, I don't think that's going to change anything, but we've got nothing to lose, so we'll try it anyway. But Jesus knew exactly where the net needed to go, exactly when they would they would be over a huge school of fish. This isn't like a hobby fisherman when you when you meet them and they will say to you, um, you know, they have every hobby fisherman has his own little tips and tricks for how to how to catch some fish. You know, you've got to use this type of bait, or you've got to use hard body lures for this species of fish, or you know, the fish always school up in that area over there. But it, but with Jesus, it's not like, here's some tips and tricks. He's like, if you put your net on the other side of the boat right now, you will catch a bunch of fish. He knows exactly what they needed, exactly when they needed it. And he fills their net right up. That, that night of despair leads to a dawn of hope. And when they responded to the words of Jesus, abundance ensues. Doing things Jesus' way results in multiplication and abundance. In their own effort, they'd come up empty-handed. Yet under Jesus' guidance, their nets overflowed. And when this happens, the disciples are tipped off that the figure on the shore is Jesus. If they couldn't recognize him before, they knew who it was now. This event has made it plain. Read with with me in verse 7. He says... um, that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. Now, remember a few weeks ago, uh, Peter and John had a race to get to the tomb to see Jesus, and, and John won. But Peter was determined to win this time. As soon as he figured out it was Jesus, he's straight into the water. He uh, he hikes up his britches and he dives into the water. 
Um, Peter was probably, um, you know, down in his boxes or something um, so that he had freedom of movement or he might have just had his clothes hanging really loose so he has to kind of um, pull them over him. Um, and so he grabs his clothes and he dives into the water. And the disciples are left, the other six disciples are left behind to deal with the fish. But Peter is preoccupied with Jesus. To him, the fish are irrelevant when it comes to seeing the resurrected Jesus. So they're about 90 metres off the coast, uh, coming in to meet Jesus. Even while they're encumbered with all this fish, Peter just, he just goes straight there. You'd be forgiven for thinking that Peter is a bit selfish, but I think he's just preoccupied. Jesus is more important to him than the fish, even though they'd been hanging out all night for the fish. And so as Peter is swimming to the shore, I want us to contemplate on Jesus. Jesus had been there. He was ready. He was prepared for them. He had led the way. And he had told them the way to go. Jesus is not physically with us in this boat that is life. But he is with us and he has gone before us and he is providing for us as we need it. He's not only concerned with our well physical well-being, but he's chiefly concerned with our immortal souls and what they need to move into eternal life. And so Jesus goes before us in resurrection life. He's opened the way and he leads us to life. He is prepared and he is waiting for us. He's gone into the most holy place to secure our salvation. We have a sure and a steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever. Christ is our mediator and he brings us to the Father where we would not otherwise be able to go. And yet, as of now, we are not quite there yet. We have the Father, we have the way, but we're along the way. So Jesus leads us along that way. He is with us always, even to the end of the age. He is our King and our leader, our guide and our illuminator, our forebearer and our example. And we follow behind him on the path that he has paved. But I want to ask you, I want to question, I want you to think, Are you following behind Jesus? Are you following the path that he has paved? Or are you kind of, you know, taking the detour, taking the scenic route? Oh, well, I'll do the Jesus stuff on Sundays, but during the week it's not a big deal. Are we, are we single-mindedly moving down that narrow path or do we flirt with the broad way to destruction? There's only one way to the Father, and that is through Christ. And when we, when we flirt with other alternate routes, we are ultimately tempting ourselves to, to jump on that broad way to destruction. So what in your life is distracting you? What in your life is causing you to not focus and, and, and go down that narrow path? What is, what is leading you astray? Whatever it is, I want you to throw it out. I want you to get rid of it. I want you to avoid it. 
Jesus goes ahead and prepares the way for his disciples. Just like you need someone to go ahead and pave a road for you to drive to your destination. He has paved the road to salvation that you might follow him through death to life. And sometimes Jesus appears to hold back blessings in life. But it is all part of his plan to bring us to the Father. He was always ten steps ahead of the disciples in the Bible and he was always ten steps ahead of us. And he's drawing us to goodness even when we appear empty-handed, even when we're in the dark hours of the night empty-handed. So know that Jesus is ahead of us. And when you spot him, I hope that you will not be preoccupied with all the stuff that Jesus has given you, but you will be like Peter. You just want to ditch the boat and get straight to Jesus. So Jesus meets his disciples in their ordinary circumstances. He's gone before them to prepare the way. He's filled their nets with heaps of fish. But for Peter, the, 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 the fish were insignificant when it came to meeting the resurrected Jesus. He ditches the boat, ditches the fish, and he comes to Jesus. And here we see that Jesus feeds his disciples. As the disciples come to the shore, Jesus meets them with a hot brekkie ready to go. In verse 9, when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And there were, although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. So the disciples come to the shore of the Lake of Galilee, where in the not too distant past, Jesus had turned five loaves and two fish into enough food to feed 5,000 people. And now Jesus meets them with some bread and some fish in order to feed them, have a meal together. I hope you can see some of the multiplication imagery coming through here. In the past, Jesus had done very similar, um, done similar miracles to fill the empty nets of those fishermen. When even when he called them as his, his disciples. And it was on this very lake where Jesus had called them to become his disciples. And he told them he would make them fishers of men. In the past, Jesus had fed multitudes with bread and fish just around the corner. And the disciples in each circumstance had proven to be ineffective in themselves. When it came to those five loaves and two fish to feed 5,000 people, the disciples were, were hopeless. They couldn't do it. When it came to Jesus, when he called the disciples and he filled their nets that, that other time, again, they were hopeless. And even this night, after the resurrection, they couldn't do it. It was out of their hands. They couldn't fill their nets. But Jesus turns up, and he does. He, Jesus pours out blessings, both temporal and spiritual. And so even though Jesus had some fish on the fire, he, he says, he, he asked them to add some fish from what he had given them. And though even though Jesus had no need of their fish, he encourages them to contribute out of what they had received for the feeding of others. And this reminds me of the way that God uh, runs his church. He had no need of our pithy offerings to run his church or grow his kingdom. Yet, he expects that we will, out of what he has given us, contribute to God's kingdom. He uses your contribution to the church 
as a means to feed others on the gospel. And it has the benefit of feeding your soul too. Uh, We see that uh, Simon is a pretty strong fellow. He goes out and seems apparently single-handedly grabs all these fish and, and hauls them in. 153 large fish. But why 153? Don't know. Um, there's some crazy, wacky ideas. One guy reckons that at that time, um, they thought there was about a bit over 150 types of species of fish um, in, their, in, that, in their understanding at that time. And so 153 fish was a sign of completeness. I'm not convinced. Other people have all kinds of, um, you know, numerological ideas about how the numbers add up to mean something important. Again, none of the things that I read about it seemed convincing, but it's a lot of fish. I think it was just like John was, John was probably the one who counted it, I reckon. He was just going, wow, that's a lot of fish. I wonder how many there are. And then he sat down and counted them and there was 153. There was a lot more than they needed or they expected. But the next question that comes up is, why is the net not torn? Again, this thing it's not clear, like the 153, is there some significance to it? Not 100% sure. But if, we, if we're committed to the idea that this, pa- this passage that we're looking at is a parable of life with Jesus, I reckon that the net kind of represents God's kingdom. God's kingdom can't be broken. Um, God's, God pours out abundantly in the new kingdom he's bringing to earth. It won't be half-hearted. It can't be lost. It can't be broken. You can pour in as much into these nets, the net that is God's church, and it, and it won't break. There will never be a limit of how many people God's church can hold. There will never be a limit of how much goodness um, and... and um, you know the the goodness of God um, will fill and overflow God's church, and Jesus invites them to eat with Him. Jesus has this pattern where He's always serving His disciples. He's teaching them. He's washing their feet. He's showing them how to live, and He even gives them His own body for their salvation. But He also serves them a hot breakfast. Read, read with me from the middle of verse 12. It says, um, Now the, none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. Jesus serves them breakfast. Interestingly, this isn't a communion scene. It's not like the bread and the wine. But the way that it says, He took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. Sounds strangely reminiscent of the Lord's Supper where Jesus took the bread and gave it to them in the same way with the cup. And I don't think this kind of link is accidental. This breakfast is an example of the way that Jesus feeds his disciples spiritually, which is what the Lord's Supper is. Jesus that morning provided for them a meal for the sustenance of their bodies, even while he had a few days earlier provided them his body and blood for the sustenance of their souls. Earlier in John, Peter, sorry, even earlier in John, Jesus had said, truly, truly, I say to you, 
Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. See, Christians feed on the resurrected Jesus to receive eternal life through him. We spiritually feed on him as the source of our life. You guys know that if you don't eat, you you get weak and you die. Or if you eat stuff that is bad for you, you are unhealthy and you are more likely to, to die or become sick. You need good food in this life for health and longevity. And in our spiritual lives, we need good food for our spiritual health and longevity. But you see, feeding on Christ doesn't just gain us a good immune system. It doesn't just gain us a long life. It gains us eternal life. We drink from Christ as the living water. We eat of him as the bread of life. He meets us where we are and he provides a rich spiritual feast in his body and blood. And as we ingest Christ spiritually, he is said to abide in us. He is within us, fueling and powering our Christian activity in this world. And this Christian activity in this world will give way to eternal life. But let's pause there for a second. Let's think. Let's reflect. What food are you eating? Now, I'm not talking about your diet. I'm not talking about what you buy off the shelf at Coles. What spiritual food are you eating? Is it good for your souls? Are you eating at all or do you go weeks at a time between meals? We need Christ. We need him to feed us and to power us, to fuel us. Jesus feeds the disciples on the beach in our story. But this is emblematic of the way that Jesus feeds all his disciples. Here we have our closing verse in verse 14. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And this brings, um, this brings this little story to a close. So even though that there's going to be some other things that happen on this morning on the beach with, with John and Jesus, uh, and, uh, and Peter, John kind of summarizes this little section that we've looked at and said that this was the third time that Jesus had appeared to a group of disciples. So Jesus, this wasn't just some one-off happening. There was this resurrected Jesus. This was happening on multiple occasions in multiple places. It was a repeated occurrence. And the real resurrected Jesus was there. You know, there's no, no case to be made here for mass hysteria or a secret resurrection. There's just a bunch of ordinary dudes who keep running into Jesus. They keep running into this miraculous God-man. So to to sum up our last point, uh, Jesus feeds us. He is our living water. He is the bread of life. He is the one whose body we must eat to have the fuel to go the distance. So let's bring it all together. As we said in the beginning, this story is the parable of life with the post-resurrection Jesus. Jesus meets us in our ordinary existence. He goes before us to prepare the way. He feeds our souls. And we saw that in our three headings where we looked at the text. We saw that Jesus' disciples were ordinary. 
We saw that Jesus went ahead of his disciples and we saw that Jesus fed his disciples. And if you think back to our opening analogy, we say that the Christian life is like the car you came in to church this morning. It's a very ordinary thing that we do. But we need the roads, we need the way to be prepared and we need the right fuel in our tank to be able to get there. Jesus paves the roads for us to get to our spiritual destination. He clears the way and he guides us to our destination. And the work of Christ doesn't just stop with making the way open. He is the fuel which powers our life. If we have bad fuel, we won't get there. If we don't have the way prepared for us, we won't get there. But we are Christ's modern-day disciples, and we follow behind him in the way that he's prepared, and we eat from the way, from what he has provided. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's so easy to see all the junk food on the shelf and to think, oh, uh, I want to eat that all the time. But we know, Lord, that it's not healthy for us. We pray, Lord, that you would send us to the living water that is Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would send us to the bread of life that is Christ, that we might receive life. We pray, Lord, that we would not be distracted by all the detours that tempt us along the way. We pray, Lord, that you would lead us to yourself along the narrow path. We wouldn't be, um, we wouldn't be flirting with the idea of jumping back on the broad path to destruction. So we ask, Lord, that you would keep us. We thank you, Lord, for the way that you, you meet us in our ordinary existence and our ordinary lives and you bring us to yourself. Um, we pray, Lord, that yeah, that you would that you would bring us to yourself, um, even as we fail and trip along the way, even as we even as we fast from the spiritual the spiritual food of Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would overcome our weaknesses to draw us to yourself. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.